Latin American philosophy and political thought are very rarely read outside of Latin America. A lack of English translations exacerbates the situation. And I will admit, until very recently, I had never read a single Latin American philosopher, with my first being José Martí from Cuba. But the West has no monopoly on philosophical thought. Most importantly, for libertarians and classical liberals, the West does not have a monopoly on discussing the nature of power and freedom. Today we'll be delving into the life and thought one of the most important figures of the Mexican Revolution, Luis Cabrera Lobato. The son of a baker who rose to prominence as a lawyer and became easily one of the sharpest intellects of the revolutionaries, as well as a staunch defender of constitutionalism. Luis noticed that without the restraint of law, names change but dictators remain. Very recently, Luis's essay, The Revolution of Then and Now, has just been translated into English for the first time. To celebrate and discuss his life, I am joined by Luis Barón. Luis is a professor of history at Business and Economic School at the University of Anahuac, Mexico. He holds a PhD in Latin American history from the University of Chicago, and his research topics are political, social, and legal history of contemporary Mexico, especially the Mexican Revolution and the history of economic thought. Thanks for joining us. I am really, really honored. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, Luis dedicated most of his life to vindicating the cause of the Mexican Revolution, but... For our English-speaking audience, what exactly was the Mexican Revolution of 1910 fought for? And can you give us kind of some context and historical background, what Mexico was like at the turn of the 20th century and the problems facing the nation? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me go back a little bit in time so I can really give you a, a full context of what was happening. Um, after the Mexican-American War in the middle of the 19th century, uh, Mexico started... Uh, period of very unstable politically, militarily, uh, having troubles internationally also. So um, after the Mexican-American War, uh, Mexico was basically in a civil war for uh, 15 years. And then we had the, the French invasion of the country and uh, uh, the French established a, an, an empire in, in, in Mexico for uh, four years. And then after um, the, the French left, uh, basically because the civil war in the U.S. was over and, and the French could not uh, stay in Mexico anymore, uh, then uh, Mexico started a period of a political um, dictatorship under Porfirio Diaz. Um, that started in 1876 and went all the way in 1910. Uh, so the, the Mexican Revolution was basically a uh, first a political movement to to get rid of Porfirio Diaz to to try to end Porfirio Diaz's uh, dictatorship. Uh, Francisco Madero started that movement, that movement, that political movement, and when he uh, ran in the elections of, of 1910 for president, uh, there was a massive fraud, and, and of course he he lost and he had to to leave the country. Um, then he came back and he called for a revolution, for a, a, an armed revolution, and, and the, the, the Mexican Revolution, uh, as such, started in 1911. Um, the Porfirio Diaz left the country, and then um, the period that we consider to be the Mexican Revolution uh, was from 1911 all the way to 1920. Uh, the revolution had three three 
distinct phases. The first one was um, the, the original revolt, revolt, the Madero revolt, and, and his presidency when and Porfirio Diaz left. Then uh, there was a, a coup d'etat, uh, the military revolted against uh, Madero, and um, Victoriano Huerta, a general, took uh, the presidency, and, and he reestablished an, uh, a dictatorship in, in Mexico from 1913 until uh, 1914, when um, uh, other revolutionaries uh, revolted, uh, basically under the leadership of Venustiano Carranza. And then uh, when Huerta left, there was a civil war in, in Mexico from 1914 to 1917, when the constitution uh, that uh, rules Mexico today was passed. And then uh, we have the presidency of, of Venustiano Carranza from 1917 till 1920 when he was assassinated. And then after 1920, uh, Mexico started to have, again, uh, institutional politics. And, and since then, there have no, uh, we haven't had any uh, successful military revolts or, or coups or, or anything. So from 1920 all the way to the present, uh, we have had institutional uh, politics. Um, that's mainly like about the context of the Mexican Revolution. The Mexican Revolution, like I said, originally was uh, the only objective of the revolution was to, to end the dictatorship of, of Porfirio Diaz. Uh, and then, of course, after he left, uh, the different revolutionary groups were not in agreement really of what they wanted. So that's why the revolution extended for the next 10 years, basically. So just to take it back a little bit, how did Luis's early life, how did it affect his later political views and how did he come into politics? Did he come into it later in life or did he, was he always a political person, always writing? Um, he, he was born in a very, very small marginalized town in the uh, uh, mountains in the central state of, of Puebla in Mexico. So he was not born to a rich family or, or nothing like that. And, and he had to go to school there in this small town. And uh, from there, he, he started um, uh, his education, his, his parents. He was son of a baker and, and his parents were uh, convinced that he needed to be educated. So he uh, went to school, which was not like the rule for people of, of, of rural Mexico. And, um, and he was, um, well, he had a, an, an uncle that was uh, governor of the state of Puebla later. And then he had another um, relative who was a journalist. So he started in journalism relatively young, uh, in his 20s. He, he went into journalism and he started writing against the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. And he also went to Mexico City to um, uh, get his education as a lawyer. So he finally became a lawyer and a writer, a journalist. And, um, and, and very early, from his early 20s, he started uh, in the opposition movement. So he went into politics also uh, considerably uh, young. Uh, when the revolution started, he joined Madero, and um, and he became a, a federal deputy in Congress in the Mexican Congress. So, so he was um, the three things uh, all together very early. Uh, he was a lawyer, and he was a writer, and he was also into politics. Um, and of course, he took advantage of, of his 
relatives being, you know, one governor, the other one in journalism. But, uh, but basically he was a pretty much a self-made man in, in almost every respect. And what did he view the problems of the Diaz administration were? Because Diaz was re-elected seven times through quite dubious means. I read one statistic that 25% of Mexican land was owned by foreign investors. He was really, he was literally stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. Like Diaz was not a good president whatsoever. And so what did Luis say about him early on? Well, when when Luis Cabrera started writing against Porfirio Diaz and his uh, dictatorship, he was mainly concerned about, um, well, a very liberal, classical liberal uh, uh, central thought, you know. He was concerned about limiting the power of government. Uh, he was not um, against Porfirio Diaz in every way because Porfirio Diaz, um, during his 30-year staying in power, he did develop Mexico. Mexico was completely underdeveloped in the 1870s. And by 1910, Mexico had um, started to, you know, a road to development. There was industry in Mexico. Um, the railroad was uh, constructed and, and it went all, um, well, it, 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 we had rail, railroad all over the country. Uh, uniting Mexico to the United States, for instance, so commerce between Mexico and the United States was greater. Uh, there was a lot of foreign investment in, in Mexico, not only on land, but also on industry and uh, on ports and, and the railroads also. So, so Luis Cabrera wasn't really against uh, Porfirio Diaz in every sense, but, but he was concerned that uh, the power of government should be limited and that um, that the basis of uh, of the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz was precisely that there was no actual limit to what he could do. Uh, so he could do good things or really bad things, and that was the main problem there. And that's why uh, he started writing against the people um, that surrounded uh, um, Porfirio Diaz in government, no? the, the people that w were called the, the cientificos, no? the scientists, the positivist liberals in Mexico that thought that uh, government um, should respond to, to scientific laws, you know, and, and, and that um, uh, you could develop uh, an underdeveloped country, but with a strong government. And, and that was what Luis Cabrera didn't like, really. Yeah, he had a quotation I read in his essay, The Revolution of Then and Now, where he says, dictatorship is wrong, even if the dictator is a man of good intentions and acts honestly, because although he may be correct in his judgments, lacking the support of the law to ensure that he is obeyed, he always needs to resort to force to impose his mandates. And so it seems that um, there's a big difference between Luis Cabrera and the other revolutionaries in that he always saw whatever he was doing that had to be limited. He didn't really trust the good intentions of people, seemingly. He always wanted the law to come first, not people's ideas. And did revolutionaries after Diaz, did they have a constrained idea of the law? Did they want to limit the state or were they much different to Cabrera? Among the revolutionaries, uh, you can find almost, you know, everything. Uh, but there was a, a faction in, in the revolutionaries in from the revolutionary group that were actually liberals um, from the 19th century. 
Venustiano Carranza, who became president and, and who was the, the central figure in, in for for the 1917 constitution, uh, he was educated basically in the liberal tradition of, of the 19th century in Mexico. The same with Luis Cabrera. Luis Cabrera was educated in that tradition, the liberal tradition in, in, in Mexico. And um, that's why they had that concern uh, about limited government. Um, so Luis Cabrera, when, when he went into, in, into politics originally with Madero and became a deputy, he, even though he liked Madero, um, he thought that, that Madero uh, was, not, uh, that was not doing a good job because he wanted uh, to see real reforms in Mexico that would limit the state, the, the government power. Uh, and, and that he, he thought that, that it was really important to get Mexico in a tradition of uh, the rule of law, for instance. And Madero was not actually doing that. Madero was just uh, saying that democracy was enough for Mexico, that if you gave people the, the power to choose democratically, you know, the president and the, the Congress and everything, that everything would be fine. And, and Cabrera was not okay with that. Uh, Cabrera thought that, that certain reforms were needed to, to actually... Uh, get Mexico into the tradition of the rule of law. So, so he opposed uh, Madero um, institutionally, of course. He, he, he was never uh, a revolutionary in those years. But after Madero was killed, he joined Carranza. And under Carranza, uh, he became basically the most important intellectual in, in, in Mexico. And, 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 and he, he mant maintained his liberal... Uh, thinking and his principles, his liberal principles, all the way from the 1910s to the end of his life in the 1950s. So he was very consistent. And that is very peculiar in Mexico, that you can find someone in the liberal tradition that was uh, very consistent in his thought during all his life. Did he have a lot of enemies? Because it sounds like he criticized every single leader of Mexico for stepping outside the bounds of law. Was he a popular figure as well? Like I can't really tell from reading because there's not exactly a huge amount about him out there. He's quite an obscure figure almost, even though he was such a heavy-hitting intellectual at the time. But he wasn't popular amongst politicians, seemingly. He was constantly getting flack from them. But amongst the regular, everyday people, did they have an opinion on him at all? Um, well, he was... Among politicians, he was not popular at all. He, he Since he was always criticizing... Uh, people in power, and he was really, really mean when he wrote. Uh, uh, he had a very heavy pen. Um, he was not popular among politicians. And, and the problem with Luis Cabrera is that he was not popular among people because uh, people actually didn't know him because very few people in Mexico could read and write uh, until the 1950s. So he was not that popular. He was not that well-known outside Mexico City and his state of Puebla. So uh, that's why he, uh, he, he was obscure in a way. And, uh, and everything that he wrote since he was you know, against the regime uh, from the 1920s on uh, was published, of course, but he went into a lot of trouble. He was exiled, for instance, for uh, some months in the 1930s because he was against the regime. 
and and then nobody wanted to to collect his uh, uh, writings and his thinking and, and 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 everything and publish it again until the until very late in the 1970s and early 80s so uh, that's why he he has remained a very obscure figure in in, in mexican mexican political thought but he had a massive impact on the constitution of 1917 and by a lot of people he's considered kind of the architect of land reform or at least the idea of it could you go into a little bit into how he impacted Mexico and the constitution and the institutions that are now still existing today? Yeah, sure. Um, I think uh, we can talk about the the two biggest impacts that he had on the constitution. He was not in the constitutional Congress because he was on a diplomatic mission in in the United States while the Congress was um, uh, in in its sessions. well, most Americans know about the invasion of Pancho Villa. Um, and after Pancho Villa invaded the U.S., then the U.S. sent troops into Mexico and Luis Cabrera was sent by Carranza to the, to the, to the United States to uh, solve that uh, conflict diplomatically. So he was not in Congress when the Constitution was drafted, but he had two huge impacts. The first one is that um, under Carranza, uh, he worked a lot on a uh, constitutional um, draft, let's say, let's call it like that, that would make the president of Mexico um, have more legal powers to govern, but that were explicit powers in the constitution. You know, um, that is very similar to the U.S. tradition where you... You uh, in your constitution, what you have is uh, people can do everything except what the law prohibits, but the government can only do what the constitution gives power to the executive or to Congress to do. Uh, so Cabrera was in that tradition. Let's you know enumerate the powers of government in the constitution. So. There is no confusion about what the, the president or Congress can do. And, and he, he worked with Carranza and convinced Carranza in a way that that was important to include in the, in the draft of the 1917 Constitution. Even though he was not in Congress, uh, he had discussed this with, with Carranza for many months before. And the other impact that he had precisely was land reform. And what Cabrera wanted... Uh, with the land reform was to uh, to build in Mexico, to construct in Mexico a rural middle class, a, a, a class of small uh, landholders that would uh, that would be the basis of a democracy in Mexico, and and he, in that he was um, also um, very close to to what, for instance. People like Tocqueville saw in the United States that the democracy was strong in the United States because you had a, a, a middle class, you know, of, of people that owned land, that were independent, that were economically independent, and that could be a limit to, to government. And Luis Cabrera wanted that for Mexico. So in, in terms of land reform, he wanted to distribute land uh, to, to towns and, and, and to uh, rural population to 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 get mexico into a kind of transition from um public and communal owned lands to private lands 
So we would have uh, that middle class. And, and that went into the 1917 constitution, and that was really, really, really important. Um, after Carranza was killed and defeated, then um, uh, in the 1930s, the law was changed, and the, the land that was distributed after the revolution became communal land uh, in the constitution. You, can, you couldn't change that. You couldn't sell it. You couldn't privatize it. You, you couldn't do anything with that land. So uh, all the way from the 1930s to the end of the 20th century, we had that, uh, that problem that we had uh, most land in Mexico was communal, was not privatized, was not uh, uh, privately owned, uh, which was against what Cabrera uh, thought. And, and in the 30s, Cabrera was really critical of, of the, the way uh, land reform was taking shape in Mexico. So he was a really critical character, constantly like putting the fire under every single politician. But in 1933 and in 1945 or 46, I think it was, he was offered a candidacy for the president, but declined. And he declined a few different political positions. Why did he constantly decline political power, but kept critiquing people? Did he not feel like he could make a difference himself by being in politics? Or do you think it would possibly corrupt him at all? No, I think that he... Um he considered himself a, an intellectual, really. He didn't consider he, himself a, a politician um, in the sense that, that he uh, saw himself fit to, to be in power. Uh, he thought that he was uh, most influential when he wrote or when he was working under a, a, a politician, really, a professional politician. He didn't see himself as a professional politician. And, and also he, he knew that it was, uh, that to run for the presidency, um, with a, with a candidacy that was not in the official party, uh, was basically a losing bet. So, so, uh, he thought he, he knew that he was not popular enough, like Madero had been, you know, when he ran against Diaz. Um, so he would lose anyway, and he wouldn't make any any difference. So he he would much rather uh, stay as as a critic in journalism, writing and and and, and trying to influence uh, from the intellectual per- perspective uh, people that were actually governing. Um, so I, I guess that's why he declined the, the candidacy for president uh, those many times. Uh, and um, and also I think that he, since he saw himself as a very successful um, intellectual uh, during the Carranza years, uh, I guess that he uh, always tried to go back to that, to, to get close to someone that, that was in power and to influence, uh, you know, politicians from that position. Uh, that's what I think, but... Um, one of the things that, that it's really hard to do when studying Luis Cabrera is that uh, his personal archives still in his family uh, and they don't let historians look at it. So we don't, we have very little of his correspondence. We know very little of his personal papers and, and, and correspondence. So what we know is from the things that he published really. Uh, and that is, that makes it really hard to know exactly why, for instance, he declined the, the candidacy or, or things like that. 
But what we do have of what he published is absolutely brilliant. I had never heard of this man whatsoever, but I read the essay, The Revolution of Then and Now, he published in 1936. And I'd just like you to go through it really quickly, but I'd like to give you three big, like three terms to discuss about the essay. The first would be just the revolution itself. The second would be freedom. And then the third one I kind of go into is his critiques of socialism and technocrats in general. Okay. Well, let me tell you first that the, the essay was written in 1936. Uh, and, and it was mainly written because of what I was talking about in the 1930s, uh, the, the view of how land reform uh, should be changed completely under uh, President Cárdenas in, in the 1930s. And, um, and he saw uh, the Cárdenas presidency as a socialist, even he, sometimes he used the word communist experiment in Mexico. Okay, so, so he's, uh, he's writing in a very peculiar context in terms of what is happening in Mexico, this turn to the left after the revolution, uh, this were very, very deeply to the left. And he's also writing in the context of what is happening in the 30s in the world. Uh, he's, he's also, uh, he was also concerned about international uh, relations and international politics. And, and he was seeing, you know, what was happening in the 30s with uh, the Nazis in power in, in, in Germany and what was happening in the Soviet Union in the 30s and in some countries in Latin America also, like uh, Brazil, which had a, a, a right-wing dictatorship and uh, Argentina also, the same thing. So so he was writing in that peculiar context. So in that essay, when he talks about the revolution, he makes this distinction about the revolution of then, which he considers the revolution that was made to preserve liberty. And the revolution of now, the revolution that is governing the 1930s in Mexico, uh, with this turn to the left, with a huge government, with huge powers uh, that that is looking more like a, a a fascist regime in a way from the left, you know. So uh, so that's why he considered what is happening in Mexico something similar to socialism or to communism. So that's a distinction that he. That's why he makes this distinction about the revolution of then the libertarian revolution and the socialist revolution of now in the 1930s. For him, the revolution in Mexico um, was supposed to be a, a, yeah, a violent, an art movement to destroy the regime that was in Mexico and build a, re- a regime completely from, from zero, uh, but a regime that was based on the law with very limited power to, powers to, to government. And that's the revolution of then. And that's why in this essay, the, the revolution of, of then, he talks about liberty all the time. He said the revolution of then was about all about liberty. Uh, and for him, liberty is uh, mainly a, a negative con- conception of liberty. Uh, so you should limit the power of government to have people really enjoy uh, every type of, liber- of liberty um, so or freedom. Um, th- that is the relationship that he sees there between the revolution and freedom. 
And when he talks about socialism or communism, he's mainly concerned, concerned about the regime in Mexico uh, looking more and more uh, like what's happening in the Soviet Union. And he has another essay, which is not translated to English, that is called the, the, the Communist Experiment in Yucatan. Yucatan is this state in Mexico, you know, the peninsula of Yucatan. And, and there, the land reform was really uh, looking more and more like what was happening in the Soviet Union. And he wrote that with that in the title, the, the, the Communist Experiment in Yucatan, because of that, he was concerned that uh, uh, Mexico had been a dictatorship in, in the 19th century and now was going to be a dictatorship, but looking more and more to a socialist dictatorship. And, and, that, and that is why uh, that essay has that form. This essay that we're discussing, the revolution of then, the libertarian, let's call it like that revolution, and the socialist revolution of the 1930s. One of the, the points I absolutely love that he makes is he's talking at a time, the turn of the 20th century, when a lot of people were starting to think this idea of freedom, it's kind of quaint and ye olde, it's very cute, but it doesn't make any sense in this materialist scientific world. But I think a really good point that he latches onto, he says the vagueness of concepts contrasts with its deep roots in human nature and that freedom is the very essence of life. Which is an excellent way of putting it is that freedom so hard to pin down because it's really everything because he talks about freedom of speech. He talks about freedom of education. He talks about freedom to work. Like he talks about all these different ideas and he's saying that freedom is a really complicated and big idea. And that's why you can't parse it down. That's also why you can't limit it to an extent because it is everything for us almost. And he constantly contrasts with the materialists. Yeah. Um, I, I think that he, he knew very well. I, I have I don't have a proof of this really, but I, I think that he had read very closely um, the Federalist, and 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 he he thought um, in a sense that um, really the, the the basis of everything was life and freedom. Um, that's a very you know natural rights kind of liberalism, but uh, but since he was um, more in the later 19th century liberalism tradition in Mexico. That's, that's why he doesn't really speak of, of, of liberty as a natural right. Um, but, but he sees liberty and freedom as the basis of everything, of everything. Um, and, and he talks about liberty in many, or freedom in, in, in many different ways, really. Uh, but he always comes to that. If you take away freedom, then you lose everything. So, so freedom for him is is the central concept of of, of political uh, political uh, order in Mexico and everywhere, really. I was going to say, you said he, you think he might have read the Federalist. I think that he must have read the Romans an awful lot because he mentions them by name. But when he talks about at one point, he says the essence of a dictatorship is not only that the nation is governed by a single person or by a few, but above all, that whoever exercises the dictatorship is not bound by laws. And this fits really neatly into the Roman, the ancient Romans' idea of freedom. And there's a famous historian, Livy, who has this phrase, an empire of laws, not of men. That's the best part of the Roman Republic, is that no man was above the law. And it seems that that's kind of the philosophy that he had, that no man could possibly ever be above the law. No man could dictate who deserves freedom and who doesn't. 
Yeah, well, that he that he studied the Romans and, and Roman philosophy and, and and all of that is really clear because he he cites a lot um, uh, Roman uh, thinkers and, and philosophers. Um, he he doesn't cite or quote um, uh, American philosophers, uh, for instance. He, from what I have read, and I have read a lot of him, I, I can't remember one single instance that he cites or quotes, for instance, Jefferson or or uh, Madison or, or, or could could that be because America might have been viewed as an imperialist power? Like America had an awful lot invested in Mexico and had a very they're very interested in the outcome of the revolution. Did Luis have a, a negative opinion of America? Yeah, I think um I think yes, I think you're right in both counts. Um it was not like politically correct in Mexico to quote American uh, thinkers and philosophers. And also, I think Luis Cabrera had a, a negative view of, of American imperialism, uh, both because what uh, the U.S. Uh, had done during the, the Mexican Revolution, um, that intervention that sent the, the, the Expedición Punitiva, it's called, the punitive expedition after the Columbus ride in New Mexico, Pancho's Villa invasion to Columbus in New Mexico. And, um, and then the, uh, also the invasion that, uh, uh, President Wilson ordered to the port of Veracruz to, to impede, uh, Huerta to, to receive uh, money and arms from Germany because, of course, World War One was beginning in 1914, and, and and President Wilson didn't want the Germans in Mexico. But um, Luis Cabrera had that negative uh, uh, view of what the U.S. had meant for Mexico um, during the revolution, and also in the latest part of his life, uh, in the during the World War in, in World War Two. And, and, and what America, the U.S. was, was doing in Europe. Um, even Luis Cabrera in those years, uh, got closer to government and was an advisor to the Mexican president in the late 40s and, and early 50s. Um, he, he got closer to government and, and he was an advisor in, in, um, international politics to the Mexican president. So, so I think you're, you're right in both counts. Uh, it was not politically correct to, to quote American thinkers or philosophers, and, and he had a, a negative view of, of what the U.S. meant to international order. So just to finish off, Mexico today is home to 127 million people, and this man basically helped found the framework of the nation and the rule of law. He has helped establish it as an important concept. So... It's, I think it's really sad that people don't really know much about him, even in Mexico. So I'd just like to ask you, what do you think the value of reclaiming the legacy of someone like Luis is, both for libertarians and for people in Mexico and abroad? Well, I think what we're living in uh, many parts of the world, and certainly in Mexico, is, is really tragic because we're moving in the wrong direction. We, we are, again, like in the 1930s, uh, having uh, a lot of people in and outside politics thinking that uh, the only way to have uh, social justice is through the um, uh, powers of government. So we're giving uh, government more and more power to do more and more things because I think uh, 
for many, many people, um, social justice or equality uh, is now more important that, than freedom and, and liberty. And um, I am pretty certain, I'm pretty sure when I, when I say that uh, every time the world has moved in that direction, uh, things have not ended well. And that, that, I think, is why it's so important to uh, make people uh, realize that there are thinkers like Luis Cabrera and uh, libertarians all over the, the, the world that we should read uh, to really value uh, the, 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 a world where freedom is a central value. I, I think um, you cannot have uh, freedom and equality uh, at the same time. I think that's impossible. And I think that if you move more to equality and give the power to the government to seek equality among the population, nationally or internationally, I think we are moving in the right, in the wrong direction. And, and history teaches us that. And that's why it's so important for people to realize what these critics like Luis Cabrera uh, are saying. That I think that's why it's so important for people to know that. And in the U.S., I think it's really important for people to realize that there are thinkers like Luis Cabrera outside of the U.S. And that uh, there are um, strains of liberal traditions all over the world uh, that uh, are very important for people to to know and, and to, to study and, 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 you know, try to make the world uh, a better place in terms of everyone being free and have their liberties protected by, by law. Uh, I think that's why it's so important. I think what we're living today in the world looks a lot like what was happening in the 1930s. And, and if, we, if we don't have the the strength and the, um, you know, the power to make people realize that these values are there, that these thinkers are there, that these critics uh, that have been there before and were saying this is going wrong, uh, we could end up in a very, very bad situation again. So I think that's why it's so important for, for us to reread or read for the first time people like Luis Cabrera inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. Thanks a mil for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time. <laughs>